Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Curtis. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by MyBookie. Go to mybookie.ag today and use the promo code UGA as you sign up for a brand new account and they will double your first deposit. We still aren't even halfway through the college ball season, so there's still plenty of time left for you guys to sign up and put some money in your pocket. So bet anything, anytime, anywhere with MyBookie. I am your host, Tyler, and I've got my co-host, Curtis, here with me today to recap Georgia's sixth straight victory in the Deep South's oldest rivalry. We have now won 15 of the last 18 in the series, dating all the way back to 2006, and I remember when that streak started. I was actually, what was I, a junior in college? I was sitting in my apartment with my roommates and friends, and we were watching that game. It was an early kick, if I remember. I think it was a 12 a.m. kick. We were a big underdog on the road at Auburn. Trey Battle had three interceptions. I was losing my mind. If I remember correctly, in 2006, I think we started off like 5-0. and Then we lost like four of our next five. We were a big underdog going into Auburn. And uh, we came up with a 37-15 victory. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was 37-15. So that's when that 15-18 of 18 streak kicked off. And it's been all dogs since that game. The average margin of victory in those 15 wins, in fact, has been 20 points. And we've actually not lost to the Tigers between the hedges since 2005. That is how you dominate a series, my friends. And this time around, despite the assurances made by Auburn's Brandon Council last week that the Tigers are going to, quote, demolish us and, quote, go in there like a SWAT team, in and out, quiet the noise, and beat their behinds and get out, despite those assurances, The Dogs beat up on Auburn yet again as it's becoming an annual tradition, this time to the tune of 42-10 and indeed covering the 30-point spread, which was actually the first time all season that we have covered a spread of 28 or more points. So good vibes all around on Saturday. And of course, it was a very different vibe this week compared to last week in Missouri. I was fending off heart attacks in the stands last week in Columbia. And the Bulldog Nation had to collectively sweat that one out despite outgaining Missouri by nearly 200 yards in that game, doubling them up in first downs, 28 to 14, and holding a nearly 10-minute time of possession advantage. Time of possession, I think, is overrated, but hey, you still rather have that advantage, right? And despite all those numbers, we trailed that entire game against Missouri and did not take the lead until the 4.03 mark in the fourth quarter, which allowed us to escape with the very narrow 26-22 victory, far too close for comfort. This week, obviously, played out very differently. But the margins everywhere but the scoreboard were very similar. In this game, we outgained Auburn by 242 yards. 22 first downs to 10 for Auburn, 11-minute time of possession advantage. But despite a scoreless first quarter, we never trailed in this one, and we ended up running away with a 42-10 to 10 victory. So, Curtis, most of these final statistical margins between the wins over Missouri and Auburn were very similar. Yet, one was a four-point victory that sent many into full-fledged panic mode, and the other, a 32-point victory that has us all feeling great about this team all over again, right? So what was the difference this week? To me, the biggest thing was the way the game was played. 
Missouri, it was kind of demoralizing the fact that we lost both lines of scrimmage. And against Auburn, I felt like we flipped the script for the for the most part. And I think that that's the, the thing that stood out to me most is we weren't getting dominated by a lesser team. Yeah, Curtis, I, th- I think you're all over it. But for me, when trying to make sense of why the scoring margins of these two games against Missouri and Auburn were so different, one a four-point victory, one a 32-point victory, despite the other statistical margins within each game being so close, I think there are a couple of factors you have to look at to try to explain that. Number one, on a very basic level, one game was on the road in a hostile night SEC environment. I know that Columbia, Missouri is not known as one of the better home field advantages in college football. I understand that, guys. I've been to every single game that we have played at Columbia since they entered the league in 2012. I know exactly what it is and exactly what it is not. But that was the biggest crowd that they had had in that stadium in three years. It was a night game. They were fired up. And the early success they had and the early issues we had, them jumping out to an early lead, only further exacerbated those issues and further fired up the crowd. And it was a hostile environment. Now, was it Neyland Stadium at night or Jordan-Hare Stadium at night? No, of course it was not. But it was still a hostile road environment, whereas this game against Auburn was at home in the friendly confines of Sanford Stadium where we had the crowd firmly behind us. Sanford Stadium, you know, for a while there, Sanford Stadium had this reputation as kind of a quiet home field advantage. That has been turned on its head. Anyone who says that it hasn't been in that stadium in a long time because it has turned into a legitimate home field advantage for the Georgia Bulldogs. And Saturday was a perfect example of that. So we had the crowd behind us. Auburn, this was their first road test of the season. Robbie Ashford's first true road environment, his first road environment of any kind whatsoever. So when things were still kind of tight in the first quarter, we didn't have a crowd against us. That allowed us to kind of get on our feet. Guys weren't pressing. They weren't feeling that pressure. So I, I think that is where you have to start. I think that was a factor, but it's obviously far more than that. To me, Curtis, the biggest difference in these two games explaining how we escaped with a four-point win at Missouri and beat Auburn by four plus touchdowns was our performance in the red zone offensively red zone was huge you're right it was huge Curtis I mean we had five red zone possessions and we scored touchdowns on all five of them against Missouri we had six red zone possessions technically I guess it was five one was on the 23 yard line we had, we had to settle for a field goal attempt from the 23 but come on guys like we're splitting hairs here as far as I'm concerned I'm calling that the red zone so we were two of six scoring touchdowns in the red zone against Missouri we were 0 for 4 until the fourth quarter when we were able to finally put together two touchdown drives but two for six scoring touchdowns in the red zone is not good enough. I mean, I said this last week, guys. This is one of the reasons why I wasn't as concerned as I think the average Georgia fan was. I mean, there were some issues coming out of that game, to be certain, and I was certainly concerned about different things. But like this, the margin, you know, only being a four-point victory, that didn't concern me as much as it did a lot of people out there because I'm looking at it, I'm like, you know what, guys? Yeah, okay, four times we had to settle for field goals inside the red zone. That's not good enough. But if we would have converted even half of those, it's a much more comfortable, like 34-22 victory. And if we converted all of those red zone attempts into touchdowns like we did against Auburn, which is not inconceivable because we did against Oregon, we did against Auburn, we've done that before multiple times. If we had converted all those, it's a 42-22 victory. Uninspiring to a degree, I guess, but certainly no one's freaking out about a 20-point victory on the road in a night game in the SEC. So to me, that's the biggest reason why these scoring margins ended up being so different in these two games, despite the statistical margins and basically every other aspect of the games being so similar. That's the biggest reason. Scoring touchdowns versus having to kick field goals inside the red zone. And then on top of that, we were also able to keep Auburn from hitting any sort of big plays offensively. They had that one stupid 62-yard touchdown catch and run in the fourth quarter that pissed me off because I really wanted to keep them from scoring any touchdowns. You know, 42-10 is a great win. 42-3 just sounds a lot better. I just like that. Feels a lot better, but they had that stupid catch and run and whatever. But outside of that, they were not able to hit any sort of big plays against us, which I know that Auburn's offense is not good, but hey guys, they jumped out to a 17-0 lead against LSU last week at home, and that was on the back of big play after big play. It really was Robbie Asher just escaping the pocket and making plays happen with his legs and scramble drill and hitting plays down the field, but we were able to keep them from doing that. Against Missouri, that was a big factor in that game, especially in the first half, they were not able to move the ball with any sort of consistency on us between the 20s. They really were not. They just hit a couple big plays. You know, they were aided by a couple of turnovers. Sure, that helped too. But they hit a couple big plays that set up 
field goal opportunities and they were long field goals and give our defense credit they bowed their necks and, and forced them to those field goal attempts but those are set up by big plays and we did not give Auburn any of those opportunities except for that one turnover that sack fumble to open the second half which allowed them to put their first points on the board so I think limiting big plays on top of our red zone success was a big factor in this game and in exactly what you said Curtis I mean dominating the lines of scrimmage I mean that was a massive factor in this game we struggled to do that at all in the first three quarters against Missouri I mean 62 yards rush in the first three quarters I mean, Stetson was getting pressured every way imaginable. I mean, that was a borderline disastrous performance by the offensive line against Missouri. And then to be able to bounce back in a big way, the way we did on the offensive line and run for 292 yards and be able to hold them under 100 yards defensively as well. That, of course, was also another decisive factor in this 32-point victory over Auburn. And I think they're all together. I mean, realistically, when you think of it, you're talking about how we were in the red zone. Well, what was one of the biggest differences? Well, yeah, we won the line of scrimmage. We were able to run the ball and we've talked about it all year. One reason we've struggled when we got inside the red zone is because we can't, we have, or not that we can't, but we hadn't been running well. All of a sudden we kind of start winning the line of scrimmage, start running better. Wow. Our red zone numbers all of a sudden were a lot better once again. Yeah, it's not rocket science, Curtis. I know that's an overused cliche, but it's it's not. I mean, when you get into the red zone inside the 20, when the field's condensed, it shrinks, it's tighter, you're going to have a harder time fitting balls into windows. The windows get far tighter, and it's hard to, hard to score throwing the football in the red zone on any sort of consistent basis. So what do you have to do? You've got to be able to man up and run the freaking football. And we were not able to do that with any sort of consistency. We even stopped trying in the first half. I think we ran the ball nine times in the first half against Missouri last week. This week we said, screw that. We're going to run the football. They're going to run it right down your throat. And we absolutely did that. So you're right. When you get in the red zone, you can run the football. It's funny how much more success you have. But you're right. I mean, all that works in conjunction. It works together. And having the home crowd behind you, making it tough for Auburn. That was actually their first road game of the year. Robbie Ashford's first road environment. So all that helped. But being able to dominate the line of scrimmage, run the football, and and hold them under 100 yards rushing the football, then all those things work together to make this a, a very easy 42-10 to 10 victory. And guys, we are just getting started here on the show today. We've got a ton more to talk about breaking down this victory over Auburn. But before we go any further, I do just want to quickly remind you guys about my bookie. I know you guys love college football. That's why you come back here each and every week during the season, during the offseason, all year round, getting your college football fix. And if you listen to this show, I also know that you know your football. You know your Georgia football. You know college football. So why not put that knowledge to the test Help yourselves out and put some money in your pocket. It's simple, guys. All you got to do is go to mybookie.ag, sign up for a brand new account, use the promo code UGA when you do so, and you will get a 100% bonus on your very first deposit. Are there a couple games you like each week? Go ahead and put them in a parlay. Win some big money that way. Do you feel good about the dogs winning the SEC or winning the national championship going back to back? Go ahead, put a futures bet down. Whatever kind of bet you want, guys, my bookie's got you covered. So go ahead, jump in on the action today. Use the promo code UGA to get that 100% deposit bonus on your first deposit and bet anything, anytime, anywhere with my bookie. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Okay, Curtis, let's spend a little bit more time talking about our success running the football. You know, we really were able to, I don't want to say we were able to run the ball 
at will. I, I think that might be a little bit of an aggressive way to say it, but we had a ton of success really from the jump. You know, we only managed 62 yards rushing through the first three quarters combined against Missouri last week before, yes, exploding for 107 in the fourth quarter alone, which was great. That's how we won that game. But we kept that momentum rolling with a 292-yard rushing effort yesterday against Auburn, averaged 7.5 yards per rush, which, by the way, was the highest uh, average yard per rush since 2019 for this football team, compared to only 4.7 yards per rush last week. Uh, Our six rushing touchdowns were the most for us in a single game since the 2018 game against UMass Curtis, there was a lot of consternation in the fan base over the past week due to those issues running the football against Missouri. And understandably so. I mean, you and I, Curtis, we were not immune from that here on the show ourselves. We we had some concerns there as well. So how do you explain that, Curtis? Obviously, the running game was a big difference in this game, but how do you explain the difference in the run game success just one week later against Auburn? To me, there's t- it's twofold. First off, the offensive line did a lot. Well, actually, threefold. I thought the offensive line um, did a lot better winning at the line of scrimmage. Second, I thought Todd Munkin called a much better game, especially in the second half when we started attacking them on the edge. Because so when we started attacking them on the edge, it started softening uh, the middle of the field up where everyone else had kind of been stacking the box almost like the last six or seven quarters going back to Missouri. All of a sudden, we started attacking the edge, which softened everything up the middle. And then, wow, all of a sudden, there were run, running lanes. And then third, I thought, especially between Branson and uh, – Dejan Edwards that they ran with the best the best vision we've had of two backs this whole season. Can I just sum up sum up the answer to this question in two words? Branson yeah. Robinson. I think <laughs> maybe four words. I mean, Branson Robinson, Dejan Edwards. Can we just say to that? Me that? Yeah, to me that they were the big difference, especially because I mean I, I, the offensive line has struggled, but there's also been times where there's been lanes to run, and our running backs aren't seeing it. And I thought that their vision just made everything so much better. Yeah, look, and that's obviously an over, oversimplification. It's more than just Branson. It's more than just, yeah. just Dejan. Dejan's been doing a great job. And look, our running backs, I feel – I mean, I think Kenny's done a really good job when he's been getting opportunities. He's been banged up. Kendall has not been healthy all year. I, th- I mean, he's been averaging over five yards per carry. So it's not like Kenny and, and Kendall have not been running the ball well. We just haven't had that extra gear. Like, you know, even Dejan. Like we, we haven't had anybody all year with that extra gear. And I think Branson Robinson brings that to the table. Curtis – is this a sign of things to come for Branson Robinson, or is this kind of a one-off type performance? I think it's the things have come. I mean, he was slowed in fall camp, which people really hadn't talked about, um, which I think in the, has affected him the most in pass protection, which we know is one of the biggest ways to keep freshmen off the field. Um, and I think the more comfort he gets in there, that you and then the more comfortable comfortability in the system you're seeing him. I mean, you're seeing the light go on. First, I'll just say this to kind of answer my own question. If this is a one-off performance and this does not earn this kid more playing time, then that's coaching malpractice. I agree. I mean, it, it, it's just that simple. I love our well, coaching staff. You guys know I, I gro- after, Especially after the groin injury to Kendall, yeah. and as Kenny's nursing, especially going against Vanderbilt, you need to get him snaps. Well, Branson Curtis just gives us something that's different. You know, he he's kind of the, the total package. You know, he's, he's obviously – had to work himself back, work himself back from an injury in fall camp, as you mentioned, and just being a freshman, learning pass pro, all that kind of stuff, your responsibilities. Honestly, I don't even know if we, st- if, if when he's in the game, I'm not sure we have access to 100% of the playbook with him in there. I don't know that. Um, but what he can do carrying the football, he is closer. I don't know if he is the total package, but closer to the total package than anybody that we have on the roster. You know what I mean? In terms of like power, physicality, strength explosiveness, burst, acceleration, speed, all of vision, all of those things you want to see in a running back, he has that. He has that extra gear that I don't think any of the other running backs on our roster have. And I'm not saying they're they're not good. They're all really good running backs, and they've all done a really good job for us. But one thing we've been missing, Curtis, all year is that burst, that acceleration, that extra gear, that extra kick. Do you think Branson Robinson gives us that? I think he does. Especially when we were attacking the edge, he was the best of the two at it. Yeah, I mean, and you combine that with the vision, the power, the contact balance. It's also really good things. Him being able to take hits and keep his balance, which is one thing I look for very closely in a running back. And that's a very, very strong trait for a running back to have. It's an important trait for a running back to have. And I don't want to, I'm trying not to make too much out of one performance, Curtis. I know that's kind of what we're doing here. But I mean, he ran, I know it was the final number is what, 12 rushes for 98 yards, but he had 100 yards and had a, a two yard loss. So, I mean, you know, close to 100 yards. He would have been our first 100 yard rusher of the year, if I'm correct, right? Yeah, he would have been. And, 
you do that against an SEC opponent, and I know Auburn is not a you know a top of the line SEC opponent. I get who they are. I understand the context there, but still, that was the best single performance from a running back that we have seen all year long. And if that does not earn this guy more snaps that and, and carry this on from game to game, then I, I I'll, I'll double down on it. I think that's coaching malpractice. And again, I, I know he still has a lot to learn, and, and Kirby will be the first to tell you that. And Branson, I'm sure, will probably tell you that too. But just because he still has a lot to learn does not mean that he cannot contribute and help us. We saw that yesterday. Even if he doesn't know the entire playbook, there are still things that we can do to get, to, his, to get the ball into his hands and allow him to go out there and make plays and help us win football games. When you look at those two guys, Branson and Dajan, 24 carries combined for 181 yards, 7.5 yards per carry, 4 touchdowns combined. And Kenny and Kendall, love them. Good running backs. This is not a, a, a bash kick. Kenny and Kendall session. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to give you some context here. They were good. 10 carries combined for 50 yards, five yards per attempt, but not as good as Branson and Dajan. So if I'm looking at these numbers, Chris, yes, I know it's just one game, but Dajan, and I keep saying it over and over again, all the man does is produce. This is nothing new for him. This is new for Branson. I mean, you see this carried on, but you could not help but like what you saw there. So if they're going to produce like that, these guys need to get more carries. They need to get, I, I will say, they need to get the lion's share of our carries. These are the guys producing for us, especially Dejan Edwards, of course, inside the red zone. And I want to ask yeah. you this about Dejan. For a guy, he's the most unlikely red zone running threat that you could possibly imagine. Small dude, not, not tall, not big, doesn't weigh a lot, but yet he's been clearly our most effective red zone runner. So what is it about Dejan that makes him so effective there in those goal line situations? I think first off, his vision. I think that's a big thing with him. You have some of these other guys, especially Kenny and Kendall, who just hit the hole and kind of where Dejan does a good job, I think, almost stutter stepping and um, with his vision. And then I think the way he runs, he runs very well, strong behind his pads and bounces off people. The one thing that I love most about Dajan is his toughness, number one. Okay, this dude is just tough as freaking nails. That's been since high school. If you watch his high school tape back in the day from from Colquitt County, you know what I'm talking about. This dude's just always been that way. And I, and I love his demeanor. He just goes out there and works hard, never says a word. I love him. I love this guy. I got a soft spot for him. I'll admit that. Um, but in terms of his ability as a runner outside the toughness, he has this make-you-miss ability inside the hole that no other running back on our team has. I love Kenny McIntosh. And Kenny can make you miss. Don't get me wrong. He can make you miss. Not like Dajan. Kendall can make you miss. Kendall's got really good short area quickness. Kendall's not a burner. He does not have good long speed. But he's got very, very good short area quickness. He's got really good feet. That's probably the strength of his game, honestly. But he still cannot, cannot make a guy miss in the hole like Dajan Edwards can. And so, it's, like you said, the vision to see where the hole is to make – because there are a couple of free runners, Curtis, on a couple of those snaps on the, on the goal line, and he just made a miss. He simply just made a move and made the miss, and he's got this low center of gravity. He's really slippery. He can kind of get skinny in the holes there, and all those things combine to make him a really unlikely but crazily effective red zone runner. I mean, he's the guy, Curse. Like, when we get on the goal line, you want to put him in the game. I mean, I know that's kind of counterintuitive to what you would normally think with the bigger, stronger, bulkier guy, which and that can work too, but Dajan just has this knack in those goal line situations of finding a way to make somebody miss – and get himself in that end zone. So he's just um, awesome down there, dude, in, in the in the in the goal line situations. But I'll go back to one of the other things you said. Obviously, Dajan, obviously Branson had big games for us. That was a big part of our success running the football, but that was far from the only part. As you mentioned, Curtis, the diversity in the run game. I loved what we saw. There's a lot made out of the Missouri game and how we we switched to more of a gap scheme running attack in the second half and, and had a lot of success doing that. And so you would think reasonably coming to this game, hey, we're gonna use a lot more gap scheme stuff. Well, very first play that we ran, it was a zone run, Curtis. And we, I think we were, I try to count up, and then this, it's sometimes tougher to tell, but based on my count, it was about 50 50 between zone runs and gap scheme runs. So we, and we were running all sorts of different kinds of runs inside zone, outside zone, split zone, gap scheme stuff, counters, truck sweep, pop passes, quarterback draws. We were throwing the whole kitchen sink at Auburn from a run game standpoint. We weren't relying on just one or two runs, which I felt like we were doing a little bit too much against Missouri. So I think that diversity in the run game, kind of getting back into the lab there, figure out, okay, how can we help our offense and our offensive line, our running backs be more successful in the run game? I think that certainly helped. I think we did a little bit better job attaching RPOs to some of these runs. There was a play to Marcus Rosemey, Jack Saint, I think in the first half, where Setson goes up the line of scrimmage and just 
like pops it out to him real quick. I want to see more of that. I've been calling for that for a year and a half. We've added more RPOs to our game this season, but I want to see even more of that. I think every single run that we have, honestly, should have an RPO attached to it, if you're asking me. That's what I would do. Just makes everything more effective. But I'm going to get back to the offensive line here, Curtis, because we killed them. We killed them. Everyone in the Bulldog Nation killed them after the game against Missouri. What did you make of this performance by the offensive line on Saturday against Auburn? I thought it was a very strong answer. Were they perfect? No. But the fact is, I think, to me, about 80% of the time, we they won the line of scrimmage. Um, and I think it was just a very strong answer by everyone when they were just completely doubted. Probably everyone in the media thought, if they can't win the line of scrimmage against Missouri, how can we expect them to win uh, against the big, the big teams? And, I mean, I think that was fair for what we saw. But I thought that they went out there and just – to me, it was almost like that lunch pail mentality that we saw Saturday. Oh, for sure. Saw. And I'll also add, like, Auburn played us differently than Missouri played us, you know? I mean, they weren't shooting gaps with the level of aggressiveness that Missouri was. Missouri guys, they were trying to create as much havoc as possible in the backfield. I'm not saying Auburn was not trying to do that. But, Curtis, you saw what I saw, right? I mean, they, they, were, not, they were not nearly as aggressive and leaving their secondary back there at an island. And they did it from time to time, but not the way that Missouri did. So that certainly was was part of this. And I'm honestly kind of baffled why they didn't try to do more of that. You think, hey, you see the blueprint of, of how to give Georgia's offense some issues. Maybe you might want to imitate that to a degree. And they didn't really do a ton of that. So that certainly helped. But the offensive line, just honestly, Curtis, did a better job with assignments. Like going back, I've, I've had a chance to rewatch it one time. I did kind of focus on the offensive line and the run game in, in particular and see like, what was the difference this week. And – I've been talking about it for a couple of weeks, Curtis. One of the biggest issues that we've had in the run game, and the reason we have not been able to break off some of these bigger runs, is our offensive line has had a lot of issues, number one, getting to the second level, and number two, when they get to the second level, actually blocking somebody there. I cannot tell you how many times on tape I've seen our guys get to the second level. All right, awesome, great job. That's what you're supposed to do. Now block somebody, and they just let people run by them. And like turn around, like do loop-de-loops there, running in a circle trying to find somebody to block, and people just run around them. And it's baffling to me. We did a much better job of that, Curse. We got to the second level, and we didn't let defenders just run by us. We didn't let defenders just run by us on gap schemes. We were, we're pulling guards and tackles. We actually put our hats on defenders, and lo and behold, Curtis, you know what happened. We're able to break off some big chunk runs. We got movement, which, I mean, we there have been times where we've gotten stoned to the line of scrimmage this year, Curtis, but I don't think movement has been the issue. I don't think it's like, you know, a lot of people want to make it out to be after the game against Missouri that our, our offensive line just flat out got whipped physically. And there were some moments of that, sure. But to me, it was far more about assignments and just not blocking who we're supposed to block and not getting our head across. And just, you know, honestly, them just being hyper-aggressive and us not really having an answer for that. But this offensive line's big, strong, physical, and we can get movement. It's just when we get movement, we got to get up to the second level and actually open up more room for our running backs to operate. I think we did a better job of that in this game. And then I think, Curtis, the, the final thing here I would say that really changed the game for us in terms of our running success against Auburn as compared to Missouri, we were committed to it, man. Like we were flat out committed to it. I, I told you guys last week that I thought Auburn secondary was garbage. And I thought we had a chance to hit some vertical shots against them. And I thought, and we, we had a couple dialed up and we just didn't hit them. We'll get to that here in a minute. But I also said like, you know, despite the issues that we had running the, running the ball against Missouri last week, we had to run the ball against Auburn. And the big reason for that is, they have no depth. Their second best defensive, defensive lineman, probably their second best defensive player, Leota, got hurt last week against LSU. They have no depth whatsoever. And we had to grind it and be committed to it because we were going to wear them down. And that's exactly how it played out, Curtis. We had 150 yards rushing in the fourth quarter alone. And that was that was deliberate, Curtis. We knew what we were doing. Now, and we had some success running the football early. But what I said last week was even if we didn't have a ton of success early, we had to stay with it, had to commit to it because it was going to pay dividends down the stretch late in the game. And that's exactly what ended up happening. But we had more success early in the game than even I thought that we would. So just a fantastic performance all the way around in the run game, whether it's from the offensive coordinator scheming things up, the offensive line opening up holes, getting up at the second level better, running backs doing a better job. I mean, yards after contact, Curtis. I mean, Branson, I think, had – 46 of 98 yards that were after contact. Dejan, 50 of 84, so more than double his yard, more than half his yards. Kenny had 29 of his 35 yards rushing that were after contact. So the running backs were also putting their shoulders down and running through people. You know that was an emphasis for this entire offense all week long, and it certainly paid off, and then it showed in a big way against Auburn yesterday. But, Curtis, as successful as the run game was, I mean, let's be honest, man. Let's call it what it was. It was a very different story for the passing game. 
For the third straight game, no touchdown passes for Stetson Bennett. He was 7-13 for 25 yards. And no, guys, I, I that's not me reading the numbers wrong. That, that's correct. 7-13 for 25 yards in the first half. Now, he did bounce back with 183 yards in the second half, but he didn't also miss a couple of layup vertical shots that he has got to hit. He finished the day 22-32, of 32, which is honestly, that's a good completion percentage, 69%. Uh, but for 200, 208 yards, but only 6.5 yards per attempt, Curtis, which is his lowest since the Arkansas game last year. We've talked about it for a couple of weeks, man, but I just want to go ahead and dive into it directly right here. How concerned are you about the lack of a vertical passing game? We've danced around it all year long, but now let's get into this, man. How concerned are you about that right now? I would say I'm at a five right now. I want, I'm going to hold, you know, four or five. I'm going to hold judgment until A.D. Mitchell is back. But even if he's back right now, I, Stetson's accuracy has taken a big hit. Um, like you said, yes, 69% completion, good. But when you th- the shots he's missing are what's killing us. Because the our, screen game inflates the completion percentage. Let's just be honest. It does. Exactly. The vert- well, and even then, I mean, he almost had a uh, screen pass. He almost threw over the kid's head wobbling. And so, and that's what's really bothering me right now is his accuracy is, is just not there. And even if A.D. Mitchell comes back and we're able to establish a vertical passing attack or people are getting open, I mean, that's the thing. You've even said it. And, I mean, it's true. Like, we're not getting separation. Well, then when we we're get not. separation, it's that simple, he, we're he not. Can, and then, but then when we do get it, he's not hitting got to hit him. Yeah. And, look, I mean, Stetson has got to hit. Like, the, the shot to Brock before the half, you've got to hit that. I mean, the one thing you cannot do on those shots is overthrow it. Underthrow it all you want. Draw a pass interference. That's fine. You cannot overthrow those balls. The one to brought before the half, that, that, was, that was a kill shot, potentially a kill shot right before the half, and we missed it. You can get away with it against Auburn because it's Auburn. They suck. But against Tennessee in a couple weeks, Curtis, you got to hit those shots when they're there. You've you got to miss hit them. those shots. You've got to hit the kill shots killing when you get Especially on these deep balls. I mean, I know Lad, they're saying Lad dropped that one. Um, I couldn't see it in the stands. But the, the thing that's bothering me the most is he's The deep shot to Lad? Through. Yeah. No, no, that was an overthrow. No, I thought it was too, but everyone's trying to say that he was that it was a drop. I mean, by and let me go back shot. and rewatch it again. But what I saw on the stands and what I saw on the first rewatch was an overthrown ball. Yes, the ball technically kind of, I guess, Lad had his fingers on it, but he had to fully extend for the ball. He had to lay out for the ball. It wasn't nearly as egregious of an overthrow as the one to Bowers. That was just flat out missed. But it was still an overthrow. You got to either underthrow that to where he has to slow down and catch it and he gets tackled. And at worst, it's what, like a 40, 50 yard gain? Or maybe you get a pass interference call or hit him in stride. The one thing you cannot do is overthrow it. And no, it was not as bad of an overthrow as the one to Bowers, but Ladd did have to fully extend and lay out to get his fingers on the ball. Could Ladd have caught that? I mean, yeah, he could have, I guess, but that is a very, very difficult catch. It was a much more difficult catch than it needed to be. But what's bothering me is there's absolutely zero touch on the ball from him right now on these deep balls because that's more than anything. You got to put in the air. Is, Let him run under it, yeah. That's, that's the thing. He has no touch on the deep ball um, because I, he's putting way too much on it. That's why he's overthrowing all these guys. And here's why I haven't been that concerned about it all year. I've kind of been brushing it off because I've seen him do it before. We saw him do it last year. These play-action vertical shots on the field hit these throws. And so I know the guy can do it. I know that player is in there. It's just like, you know, this year I would, I, you know, I kind of want to see it this year. I need to see it this year because we're going to need I those mean, shots. It, realistically, going back to Kent State, he, since Kent State or going to Kent State that game, he has not, he has not been the same quarterback. Well, even against Sanford, Curtis, he wasn't accurate in that game. He missed a couple throws in that game. No, he had terrible footwork, got lazy. And, and that the, later in the second half, you saw it better. Maybe the run got it. But his footwork, he, he is, ha- to me, it almost seems he has happy feet in the pocket. I see a little bit of that at times, yeah. Especially like not, last week against Missouri, for sure, yes. But earlier in the game, I thought he was just not getting his feet set. Um, or, in general, his his pocket presence has not been what it was. It's fair. I, I can see where you're coming from there. I, I and look, I'm not trying to make excuses for Stetson. I, this is a legitimate question here, Curtis. Well, my, we saw yeah, last yeah. week against, against Missouri, he's doing the whole shoulder swing thing. He comes to the sideline. He's wincing in pain there. Do you think there is some sort of injury concern here where it's like it's something he can play through, but he's kind of gutting it out and he's not 100%? I believe it is, yes. And, and I don't know that is, for sure, but I'm just asking. I think there is some injury. I don't think he's 100%, no, especially with the shoulder. But, I mean, that also doesn't explain Kent State um, or for Sanford. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But my thing is also, like, 
he has got but that see that shoulder thing that's not stopping him from the ball slipping out of his hand on a, on a tunnel screen it's two games in a row that's happened that can't happen that can't no happen. and that that's the thing like he is i don't know he's got to i don't know if his focus or what or laziness in the footwork or what it is but he has take he has regressed since that Oregon game well, the Oregon game is a very different game plan, Curtis. Like, we didn't even try to push the ball down the field. I mean, he was, we were heavy screen game, heavy short game there, and we were getting guys in space. And they were making plays. I mean, honestly, Curtis, we have not seen a vertical passing game all year, like 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 we saw last year. Okay, we we have not. Now, a big part of that, as you mentioned, AD Mitchell. This is and this is why I'm not freaking out about it. I know a lot of people are, and I understand why you're freaking out about it. I, I'm not. I can't say that I'm not concerned. I am. There's a, there's Can a I level of concern here. I have another thing I think that has affected the, the vertical passing game. We haven't been able to run the ball. A lot of our deep Boom. shots last Bingo. year were all off play action. Well, we haven't Bingo. run the ball. And I mean, look at the play with Brock. We are starting to run the ball better. First down, we hit, hit the, the offensive line hold, does their job, and we are able to hold them. And then all of a sudden, we have someone. The play was there to be made. Bingo. Curry, I mean, let me go off just for a second here. I, I, I Thank you for bringing that up. You're, I could not agree more. You're a thousand percent right. So, Curry, let me go back. You mentioned the Oregon game, right? And how we put, you know, 49-3. We had this new offense. It's the next greatest show on turf. It's, it's incredible, right? Everyone's excited. I was excited. You were excited. We're all excited. But if you go back and you really think about it, Curtis, the offense we saw the first couple of weeks was very different from what Georgia had done historically right even under Todd Munkin and Kirby Smart I think that was a big reason why it was so successful the first couple weeks of the season but here's what I'm starting to come to realize Curtis that offense that we saw putting up points the way we put up points in those couple of games I don't know if that was sustainable you know what I mean here let me explain why because what were we doing in those games especially the Oregon game it was primarily screen and short passing game right right Mm -hmm. that's what we were doing and I don't know if that can be – in fact, I don't believe that can be the core of your offense. I think those things, the screen game, short passing game, they can be dangerous complements to your core offense, but I don't think they can be what your offense is built on. I think what's happened the past couple of weeks, Curtis, honestly, if you watch how Auburn is triggering against our screen game, teams have gotten tape on what we were doing early in the year, and they've kind of figured it out. When we have Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington spread out, when we have Brock Bowers or Darnell going in motion and they're still in motion the snap and we have uh, Kenny McIntosh out wide, what are we doing, Curtis? Oh, yeah, we're going to send Brock out there to block for Kenny and Kenny doesn't get a screen pass. Week one, Oregon didn't know that. We hadn't shown that. South Carolina still hadn't quite figured that out in week three. Now teams are figuring those things out. Now they know our tendencies. They know what we're doing. And if we don't have something else to lean on, if we are not able to do something different, what we saw against Oregon, that offense, that success, putting up those points, those yards, what we saw against South Carolina, it's not sustainable unless we can do something else. So you're exactly right, Chris. I think what this game was about for me, it's my biggest takeaway of this entire game. It's rediscovery. I think we figured out what this offense needs to be. You can get that feeling, Curse, of kind of this is this is what we're gonna see from this offense moving forward. I do it at the same time. I also got the feeling that the offense was having fun again. I mean, that this was what stood out to me the most because the offense seemed so desperate to be perfect. It's almost like they had this weight on their shoulders, yeah. Especially and Kirby said in the, in the post game press conference, it's like you know we're kind of we were kind of our own worst enemy, and like you know, I know it's not the right way to say it necessarily, but what he's getting at essentially was, hey, we scored forty nine points against Oregon, and now everyone expects us to to do that every single game, and if we don't, then all of a sudden we suck. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think and that's that how pressure gets to the offense, and then you have a couple performances where it's not that standard. And everyone's questioning, like, what's wrong with George? And you drop George from one to two. Now we yo-yo back to number one, but who freaking cares about that? But Curtis, I mean, if you think about the personnel on this team, let's, let's think about this, Curtis. Stetson Bennett is best when working off play action. I think Stetson is more equipped to win with the drop back pass game this year. I think he's better at it this year than he was last year, but he's still better off play action than anything. We saw that last year. Uh, and you know, honestly, Curtis. We don't really, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, we don't really have the wide receivers that are winning consistently against man coverage. We just don't, okay? We just don't. Now, A.D. Mitchell coming back healthy can help that, I think. Uh, but when he's not out there, we don't have guys that are winning consistently one-on-one. The windows in man coverage are very tight. And Stetson, that's part of Stetson's issues. He's having to fit the ball in very tight windows, you know? And, and that's tough for a quarterback. And we have needed to get the ground game going, commit to it, because with this roster, 
with one guy, we have A.D. Mitchell, who we think can be a legit number one receiver. We have Lad McConkey, who I think is a really good number two guy. We have some badass tight ends, a, a, a strong physical offensive line when they know who to block, a veteran quarterback who operates really well off play action, some good running backs. Curtis, when you have a person, when you have personnel like that, a roster made up of those kind of guys, this is what your offense should look like. No? Am I, am I crazy yeah. saying that? No, you're right. And I know everyone wants everyone wants us to be Ohio State's offense. And we thought we we saw visions of sugar flum, sugar plums and fairies after the Oregon game because we we're like, oh man, like we're we're running the Alabama offense. Now we're gonna look like Ohio State. It's like, well, not exactly. Because if you want I watched the Ohio State Michigan State game yesterday, Curtis. We don't have those receivers. I'm sorry, we don't have Ohio State's receivers, but we have we have this offensive line. So I, I, I despite what happened against Missouri, I think it's still a really good offensive line, it has some really good physical players. We have some killer tight ends that are just freaking crazy awesome when it comes to the to the run game, the blocking game, whether it's on the perimeter, whether it's on the interior. It doesn't matter. Those guys are badass blockers. So and you think about last year, Chris, we were so explosive offensively. We were people don't want to admit it, you know, rival fan bases, but we were one of the most explosive offenses in the country last year. And the reason we were so explosive last year is because teams had to defend us a certain way. And we were able to work play action off of that. I think that's what this offense needs to be again. And I think we started to see signs of that yesterday against Auburn because, I mean, Curtis, again, like we just don't have guys that are winning consistently enough against man coverage, got those tight windows. All of that is, is very true. Here's what I think, Curtis. I think this year's offense, when it's all said and done, can be a more souped up version of last year's offense. Does that make sense? I agree. I mean, I think they can do it. It's just they've got to establish a ground game because whatever we're doing right now, like teams are just sitting on the short passes because they're not afraid of anything deep. 100%. And, and that's what I'm saying, Chris. Like, I, I think that the ground game has to be the basis of this offense again. I know a lot of Georgia fans are going to roll their eyes and go, oh, my God, no, we're going to go back to the same old Well, it doesn't offense. mean you have to run the ball. It doesn't mean you have to be 60-40, but you have to be effective when you yes. do run it. And, Chris, even if we go back to the splits we had last year – Go back and look at the numbers, guys. We were one of the most explosive and efficient offenses in the entire country last year. Why do we not want that again? And I think we have better players. I think we have more weapons this year. So that's why I think if we go back to that same blueprint, because I think that's what the blueprint has to be for this offense, based on the personnel that we have. If we go back to the same blueprint that we have last year and operate off of that, I think this can be a more souped-up version of last year's offense because we have more playmakers out there we have more options to work with guys that are veterans that have been out there for, for for a longer period of time so i think curtis i'm hopeful that we might have just figured that out yesterday against against Auburn. i'm hopeful we'll see you know it's one small sample size here but i think that was the first sign of this team going back to our roots and going back and saying look this is what this team's built to do this is the blueprint and we're just going to work all this screen game that we had a lot of success with early in the year we're not going to abandon that we're just going to work that in as complementary pieces to this core of what we are, to the roots of this team and this offense. So that's my piece in the offense, and that's where we are right now. We'll see how that plays out moving forward. But I think that's kind of maybe what we figured out and kind of rediscovered against Auburn yesterday. And there is still plenty left to discuss here on this episode. We still have an entire side of the ball to talk about. But before we get there, I do want to remind you guys about our friends at Alumni Hall. This Sunday, guys, you're not going to want to miss this. They are holding a meet and greet with current Georgia players from 2 to 4. This is the Sunday after the Vanderbilt game. So if you're in the Athens area, it's easy for you, right? If you're coming in for the game and you're staying until Sunday, go get yourself a nice brunch and then head over to the Epps Bridge Shopping Center near the Oconee Connector from 2 to 4. Bring the whole family. There's going to be Georgia football players, a lot of stuff going on. You can pick up some gear for yourself, for your family, for friends. The holiday season is just around the corner, so you can go ahead and get a head start on that. So make sure to come, bring the whole family, make an afternoon of it, and check out all the awesome Georgia gear and accessories that Alumni Hall has in store for you guys. Again, that's this Sunday October 16th from 2 to 4 p.m. in store inside the Epps Bridge Shopping Center. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. 
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, Curtis, we talked a lot about the offense so far today, but let's go to the defense here for a few minutes. Another fantastic performance by this defense, 258 total yards allowed, four yards per play, only 93 rushing yards of 10 points. Man, I was really hoping that we wouldn't give up that garbage touchdown in the fourth quarter, but we did. But that wasn't really starters, but whatever, it happened. So 42 to 10, we now lead the SEC in scoring defense, only giving up 10.7 points per game. Curtis, what stood out to you the most about the defensive performance against Auburn? I think winning the the line of scrimmage, especially without Jalen Carter, I think everyone thought that there was no way we could do it. And to me, I think that was the biggest thing, winning the line of scrimmage with what we had out there. I have to be honest, Chris, I was concerned about that. You know, I, I felt that we well, could, I was too could hold our own, but without Jalen and also without Smile, See, I was I was moderately concerned. Without, if we lost the line of scrimmage without Smile, we were in trouble. And winning it helped protect, like, Ryan Davis. Yeah. What did you make of Ryan Davis' performance? Um, I thought it was Reggie Carter-ish. You know, yeah, I mean, it was just, nothing I don't, special. I don't, it was solid. That's not an insult either, right, right Curtis? Because Reggie Carter was good for us. He's just not. Yeah, he was dependable. Special. He just wasn't anything. He's just not like a game changer. Right. He's not Smile Mondin. You know, it's, it's just that simple. You, there's there's a drop off there, and just and really in terms of athleticism. But, that, but Ryan did play really well. It's it's not his first playing time. It's his first start, and I was happy for him to get out there. I thought he did some really good things for us. But you can obviously tell that we don't have the same level of athleticism out there on the defense with him out there and not Smile Mondin. But you know, you can say about a lot of guys, a Smile is a freak athlete for sure, for sure. But Curry, your takeaway is kind of my takeaway. If we were able, look, let's just let's let's be real about Auburn here for a minute. Auburn's not good on offense. They can't. Throw, they cannot throw the football from the pocket whatsoever. I told you guys that coming into the game, if we could keep him in the pocket and force Ashford to beat us with his arm, then they, if we could force them to do that, there was no way they're going to win this football game. And that's kind of how that played out. And he escaped the pocket a couple of times, but not enough to really hurt us. You know, against LSU early in that game, they went up seventeen nothing against LSU last week. But that was all because of broken plays. We, he got out of the pocket, escaped, extended the play, and. Basically, it was just scramble drill, and they, they hit some explosive plays. And they were not able to – he escaped the pocket a couple times against us, but they were not able to hit those explosive plays on the field of the scramble drill. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, Curtis, our ability to hold up as well as we did, even though Auburn's not good on offense, but our ability to hold up as well as we did defensively without Jalen Carter, clearly the best defensive player on the team, and Smile Mondin, one of the, if not the most athletic players on the defense against a guy like Robbie Ashford who can move as well as he does from the quarterback position, us be able to, I mean, keep them from really doing anything offensively. They got three points since the starting defense because we gave them a turnover to open the second half. Outside of that, our defense shut them out, you know, our starting defense at least. So I, you got to feel really good about that. I know it's hard to draw any sort of definitive conclusions off of a game like this when you play against Auburn, who, again, is just not very good on offense. But – you still have to be very excited about what you're seeing from this defense because it's still a very, very young and experienced defense, but they keep producing game after game after game. And no, like we haven't played the, the best offenses on the, on the schedule. Those are coming up here the next month or so. But you have to like what you're seeing to this point, Curtis. You know, I, Let me ask you this about the defense. Statistically, our numbers right now are very similar to the 2021 defense. You know, we're, we're giving up 10.7 points per game compared to 10.2 points per game last year. Uh, we're giving up 4.6 yards per play to, compared to 4.15 last year. So yeah, we were better last year, but it was, there hasn't been that much of a drop-off, not near as much as I think a lot of people nationally thought there would be because we are still a top 10 in every major defensive category. But now, Curtis, officially halfway through the, through the year, which, God, that sucks to say. Man, it just flies by. But we are halfway through the schedule. What are your biggest concerns right now, halfway through, about this defense moving forward? Mine's going to be pass rush because, especially when you look at Tennessee, that's the way you have to beat them is to get to Hendon Hooker. Pass rush and 
pass rush. And then my second thing is, as you talked about on that big play where we gave up the touchdown, even though it was garbage time, we haven't tackled very well consistently. God, that was absolutely pathetic. That I mean, we had three guys right there. I mean, they literally just looked at him and just let him run. It's like, okay, all right, Jarquez Hunter, all right, there you go, 62 yards. Tackling, yeah, and, and that's a tough one, though, Curse. It's like, you know, you know how practice is nowadays. No one really practices tackling live. Yeah, but see, watch Tennessee, and that, especially right now, that's who we're going to talk a lot about. Um, yeah. But that's how you beat them. Or how they beat you. a fantastic job of getting the ball in space. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. Do you think we have answers for the pack? Because I, I mean, I, it's kind of like the vertical passing game, Curtis. I'm not not concerned about the pass rush, but I'm also not freaking out about it because I think we do a really good job of affecting the quarterback, even if we don't get him on the ground. But do you think we have answers moving forward? Have you seen signs of us being able to get after the passer more consistently? We're getting after the passer. And I have to say that Xavier Ansori, I think, is getting more and more comfortable. Yeah, coming in the third down package, he is. I mean, he's a guy that's a he, well, he, and realistically, inside linebacker, the more they play, the better off we will be. Because I, I mean, you think back to Kobe Dean, it was just playing reps. That was the difference of how he could just shoot through those gaps so well. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's a feel thing for sure. And timing it up, all those things for sure. The, the big concern I still have, Curtis, is, and I've said this many times, I guess I'll say it again here. This is this the question? I think that we do a good job of affecting the quarterback and, and, pressuring the quarterback, getting him off his spot, all those things. But we still don't have – you know, I was watching the AM alabama game last night, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you watch Dallas Turner. You watch Will Anderson. You watch Chris Braswell. They have three guys that can just line up. And if you put any of those guys, any three of them get one-on-one coverage, they're going to win every single time. Like, literally every single time. We don't have a guy like that. Does that concern you? Like, we don't have a guy – like, one dominant pass rusher – like an edge rusher that can you can just say, all right, go win when we need a sack. Of course, it concerns play. me. I think, and I think that that's a talk for another time about disappointment with certain coaches um, for leaving yeah. us like that. But yes, it is a concern because right now we can get pressure on them, but pressure is no good half the time if you're not finishing the play and causing that disruption where all of a sudden it's second and 16, third and 16. We have to we have to manufacture pressure. Let's be honest. We don't we don't win with just our our straight pass rushers up front. Like we don't just rush four guys and and one of them wins. You know, like not consistently. At least I'm not saying they can't. What we do is from the interior. Like honestly, Curtis, our best pass rusher is probably Jalen Carter. Yeah, and he has been playing, which I think honestly, Curtis, I I do think that kind of factors into some of our pass rush concerns because he is our most dominant pass rusher. Like it, it, I know it's, it's not like traditionally what you see is a guy that, that's from the interior as your best pass rusher, usually it's an edge rusher, an outside linebacker in our defense, but that's not the case this year. Jalen Carter is our best pass rusher, our most explosive pass rusher. He hasn't played really, Curtis. He played a little bit a little bit against South Carolina. So I think once he gets back healthy, if knock on wood, he can get back healthy, then that certainly will help the pass rush, especially on third down situations. But, I mean, that that is a little bit of a concern in front. You, you, you talk about playing a team like Tennessee and also Mississippi State, where you want to be able to affect the passer and get them on the ground and harass them. And I don't know like if it's third and, you know, it's third and seven, a big critical moment of the game. Do we have that one guy like Will Anderson or um, Dallas Turner, like Alabama has, that can go out and just win and just on that snap, just go get the quarterback. And that kind of concerns me because we have to manufacture. When you have to manufacture and you bring guys from different angles, which we do a fantastic job of. Like we do a great job bringing guys from the second level, but you can also leave yourself vulnerable to the pass game behind that. And that that's a concern for me. So it hasn't hurt us to this point, Curtis. Like we again, from a production standpoint, we have been borderline just as productive as the defense last year. But I think when we're all sitting there watching this defense, do you get the feel this defense is as good as we were last year? No. Yeah, you still don't quite get that feel. And the pass rush is certainly a part of that because we were dynamic rushing the pass. We didn't, wasn't just one guy, but the way we were able to get for the quarterback last year certainly helped that defense. I don't know if we can do that quite the same way this year. All right, Curtis, the last thing that we have left on the agenda today is to hand out our game balls for the best performances of the week. As usual, I'm going to let you take the honors off the tee box. Who gets your first game ball? I'm going with Branson Robinson. Figured you would. Yeah. Branson Robinson, great call there, Curtis. All right, I'm going to go with the other guy of the one-two punch in the backfield against Auburn. I'm going to go with Dejan Edwards, 12 carries, 83 yards rushing, Three touchdowns, which actually, guys, was the most since Sony Michelle in the 2018 Rose Bowl. I've said it before. Let me say it one more time. 
all Dejan Edwards does is produce. The guy gets the job done. So I love him, proud of him, happy for him. He gets my first game ball. All right, Kurt, who gets your second one? Um, I'm going uh, Nolan Smith. I thought Nolan played very well, especially holding the edge. And then we haven't talked about it, but I thought that, that the play he made stopping with that fake punt was huge because if he doesn't make that tackle, that guy may have been able to make something happen. Yeah, you stole him from me. I didn't think you would take Nolan. He was going to get my second one. Yeah, I love Nolan Smith in this game. I mean, Nolan just does a great job, Kirsch. You know, we're talking about pass rush, and I, I know people get frustrated with Nolan because he was the number one overall recruit a couple years back and had this reputation as a potential pass rusher. He's a great athlete, but he hasn't really translated as this dynamic pass rusher. But that does not mean that Nolan is not a, a big-time player for us because he is. I mean, he's a monster against the run. And it's so crazy considering he's not a big guy. But he is just dominant against the run. He was Saturday. Uh, he pressured Ashford a couple times. You're right, the fake punt curse, the awareness there. I mean, Auburn's trying to – hey, they'd seen it, you know, two times. Teams that have been able to convert fake punts against us, and they were trying their hand. And fortunately for us, no one was there aware, able to make that play. So great call there for your second game ball. I'm going to go, Curtis. This might be cheating, all right? But I'm going to cheat anyway. I was trying to pick out one guy on the offensive line. I told you guys my first rewatch. I made it all the way through, and – I was watching idea. the run game heavily, and I was trying to pick out one offensive lineman. But I, I couldn't really do it, Curtis. I thought they all played so much better. Trust was probably the one who had the worst game. I mean, he gave up a couple plays where, I mean, it's like not even trying to block someone in pass pro at times. Like, good God, man, what are you doing? But overall, offensive line played very, very well. So I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to give the entire offensive line a game ball. We were all murdering them last week after that horrid performance in the first three quarters against Missouri. Because it was. It was just flat-out horrific. There's no getting around that. Unacceptable. So when we kill them like that, I want to come back and give these guys their just due and applaud them when they play well, because that's exactly what they did. All the way across the line, whether it's Van Pran at center, I thought Tate Rather did a much better job. He looked like he was moving better, which is a really good sign. Uh, Marius Mims got... He's playing more and more. Curse. I think. I think Amarius Mims honestly is, is our answer at right tackle. I don't think we're ever ever going to give him the starting job this year. But I think he's just going to continue to play more and more and more. Uh, I thought he played really well. McClendon played well. Also, uh, Broderick wasn't as strong as we were on the right side of tackle, but he also had a solid game. So, curse. You know, two hundred ninety-two yards rushing, seven point five yards per attempt, bouncing back from that horrific performance against Missouri on the ground. I got to get the entire offensive line one of my game balls here. All right, Kurt, who gets your last one? So you stole my idea, but I think I'm going to go with Bear Alexander. Um, I think this guy is really just starting to get it. Fraction of the surface, man. I mean, especially on third passing situations, um, he's making some stuff happen. Oh, he absolutely is. I mean, when and he's he's actually, I was kind of surprised, Curtis. You know, Jalen Carter is kind of a mainstay on the interior in our third down packages. I, how surprised were you to see Bear Alexander out there in a lot of those situations on Saturday? I wasn't. I mean, coming off of Jalen Carter being injured, and I think it was a chance for him to get these snaps. Um, so I'm not super shocked. I wasn't shocked. I thought might be. I think Warren Brinson has been a really explosive interior guy for us. I thought he might see more of those reps. He saw some, but Bear got quite a few of those third down pass rush reps, and I, I was. Not shocked, but at least like mildly surprised. Well, but happy for him. Like, this guy's ceiling is off the charts. Is working back from injury, so I think that's a big thing with him. Yeah, that's a good call. That's a good call. All right, my final game ball, Curse. I'm actually going to stick on the defensive line. And this is going to be a game ball. And maybe it's not just based on this one performance, but he's just been really, really super solid for us all year long on the interior, replacing Jordan Davis. He is not Jordan Davis. He is not going to be Jordan Davis. But he's been really solid for us, a, a really pleasant surprise in the year for us, in my opinion. And that's Nazir Stackhouse. Ooh, that's a great um, one. He's I, a, that's actually who, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's done a great job anchoring the middle of that defense and, and very underrated. Like, he's not Jordan Davis. He's not going to eat up blockers the way Jordan does. He's not going to chase down ball carriers the way Jordan does. He doesn't have that size, that athleticism. But this is a guy that is a developmental story. Because when he first came in, Curtis, he was not playing much at all. And in fact, he was one of those guys I started to question, like, is this guy ever going to play? Is he going to do that much? And I, as fall camp kept going on, I kept hearing more and more from some people around the program that it wasn't Zion Logue who was going to be playing there starting opposite Jalen Carter. It's going to be not Stackhouse. Like, he was the guy getting the looks. And I was like, huh? Not Stackhouse. Okay. All right. Interesting. Let's let's see how that works out. And the guy's just been a rock. He's been very, very solid. Not dynamic, not Jordan Davis. He's not a first-round draft pick kind of guy. He's not that. But he's been solid all year for us. He's helped the point of attack very, very well. Even give us a little bit of a pass rush at times. 
And I thought he did a fantastic job winning against winning consistently against Brandon Council on Saturday. You know, the the guy that's very famous for last week for saying that, he, that they were going to demolish us. But yeah, I think he's been fantastic for his curse. I think he's done a great job all year. I thought he did a fantastic job on Saturday as well. But that does it for us today here on the Glory UGA podcast. This one was a lot less stressful than the win last week in Columbia. And we probably got one more of those here coming up next week. Knock on wood, don't get too far ahead of yourselves. Would you like to think we'd be able to take care of business against Vanderbilt pretty comfortably? But then after that, it gets real, guys. That stretch run is coming. We got Florida, Tennessee, Mississippi State, Kentucky, and then I guess, yeah, there's Georgia Tech there at the end. But we've got some tough games coming up here the rest of the way, and we are going to be here to cover it all for you guys. So make sure to be checking back each and every week, multiple times during the week. Charlie and I will be back with our mailbag episode here in a couple of days, and I'll have a preview episode. Maybe might possibly get version three of my SEC Power Rankings now that we are about halfway through the season. And then, of course, we will wrap things up with our picks of the week. So a lot of great stuff in store for you guys the rest of the way, just as we do each and every week. So make sure to check back for more later on this week. But thank you for being here, guys. For Curtis, I'm Tyler, and as always... Go dogs! <laughs>